If you have a Bible with you, open it to the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible with you, please borrow one of the pew Bibles. You'll be needing it this morning. Uh, If you borrow one of the pew Bibles, you can find Romans, the beginning of Romans anyway, on page 939. This fall, my in-laws, the Borens, are taking Isaac and I on a trip to Boston and to the generally, uh, just the northeast part of our country. They decided a couple of years ago that they would take each of our children on sort of special trips uh, to a different part of the world in some cases, uh, just a different part of America, so that they could form some memories with them and to show them, and they were going to take them on their own. Uh, They invited me to go along probably because they lack a certain sense of judgment, even in their generosity. Um, I, I don't really know why they want me to go along, but they have asked me to go along, and I have, of course, graciously accepted, because that's just the kind of guy I am. My son has taken it upon himself then, as he prepares for the trip, not only to, uh, through school, learn about the Revolutionary War, a lot of the battle sites that we will see, but also to study a map of Boston and Massachusetts so that he would know the cities and the areas that we would be going. And I thought that this was an exceptional idea, a really excellent idea that he came up with quite on his own. He will be somewhat better oriented to the locations that we're going to be visiting. He'll be able to find them on a map, and and seeing the names and where they are on the map will spark memories for him to be able to keep the memories that he will make sort of at the forefront of his mind. Looking at a map and studying a map is, is not going to replace actually being there. He won't know what the atmosphere is like at Fenway. He won't know what the Charles River looks like at dawn. He certainly won't know what lobster freshly caught out of the Atlantic tastes like simply by looking at a map. But it will help keep those things together. It will help provide sort of a glue for the trip itself. Today I hope to do something akin to that. Lord willing, and if the Lord tarries, we'll be spending the next months, if not years, going through the book of Romans. There'll be many things to see along the way. Some of you, no doubt, are excited to think through our great salvation in Jesus Christ as Paul lays it out in 321 through 26. Some of you want to have proclaimed to you the great hope of 831 through 39. Some of you simply want to know what the mystery of chapter 11 is all about. But we run the risk of losing ourselves amongst the individual trees if we don't seek to keep the entire book before us. We need to have sort of a 30,000-foot view of the book of Romans so that we don't get lost and swept away in other sections, as important as they could be. I want to, the best I can, give you the taste and the smells and the sounds and the atmosphere of, of the passages that we will be handling. But I also don't want you to think that passages like 321 through 26 that we will talk about even today, as important as they are, and they are crucially important to understanding the work of Jesus Christ, that those passages are the thing that Paul wanted to communicate to us. Because as important as those six verses might be, they are not the thing that Paul wanted to communicate to us. But there is more to it than that. If you were to go to the city of Rome today, you'd probably want to go see the Colosseum and maybe the Pantheon. If you visited those places, you would get a sense of Rome, but you wouldn't get the full sense of Rome. Because only visiting those two places don't tell you about how Rome as it stands today. You would know that Rome is 2,000 years old. You would know that Rome is older even than that. But you would lose the sense that Rome is not just a city with a past, but a city with a present, with its own life and vitality. So today, we will take a look sort of at a map of the book of Romans. 
We are going to be going through the entirety of the book today to give you a feel for what the book of Romans is saying before, in the matter of months and years ahead of us, we start to dig into individual verses. I hope to give you this lasting impression of the book so that when we do get into the trees, you don't get lost for the forest. If you desire to follow along, then we will be going sort of right through the book of Romans. So if you're open to Romans 1, we will be there in just a moment. But first, and the first point I would like to make for you is the background of the book of Romans. The background of Romans. Paul is clearly the author of this book, as it says in Scripture. The good news is that even the most liberal of scholars, uh, while they might doubt other books that we believe are written by Paul, First and Second Timothy, for instance, there isn't any scholar that's known today that would be respected by anyone in the academy, whether liberal or conservative, who doesn't think that Paul wrote this book. Now, it doesn't matter all that much to us because it says right there as the first word, Paul. So we're pretty clear that Paul wrote it, but everyone else agrees with us, and it's nice to have unity. So Paul wrote this book. And because of Romans 15 in the book of Acts, we know generally that Paul, or we think generally that Paul might have written this from the city of Corinth. He probably wrote it from Corinth after picking up the the offering that he was going to take back down to Jerusalem, but before he went to Jerusalem. And because we know of the timing, the, the range in there, we've got a really small range for when he wrote the book. He wrote it in A.D. 53 or 55, somewhere in between those two dates, so about a two-year span of time, which is really, really a tight frame when we've got 2,000 years of history behind it. Generally speaking, that's about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. I find that to be just unbelievable, that Paul was able to pen this two decades after that. I, I can think back to 20 years ago or so when 9-11 happened. I remember where I was. I remember hearing about the first plane crash into those buildings. Do you think that we could write an accurate history that would stand the test of time and capture all of the effects and all of the, the problems that we faced and our solutions for them in the future as Americans, let alone as the world, by writing a book today, knowing what we know about it? 9-11 spawned numerous debates about war, terrorism, espionage, national security. It has changed the way America responds to the world. It's changed the way we travel. And in many cases, not only our foreign policy as a nation, but individually how we respond to foreigners, rightly or wrongly. Certainly we could pen a decent history of 9-11, talking about its effects, but almost just as certainly we would be better equipped in 10 years, in 20 more years, to write an even better history that has more full and complete listing of the effects that have come from that terrible event. Yet, after only 20 years, pen, or Paul has penned a theological work looking back on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that probably stands as the greatest theological reflection in the history of man. Some probably make too much of the book of Romans. I would readily agree with that. It is not the only thing that we should read in Christianity. And if we only had the book of Romans, we would be incredibly bereft of a number of things that we need. But nevertheless, it is an incredible achievement and one that I hope makes your life as a Christian, it makes your devotion to Christ richer and fuller. This letter was, unsurprisingly, written to the Romans. The people who lived in Rome were mainly Gentile. There was an expulsion of the Jews from Rome some five, ten years before this book was written. 
Some of those Jews had probably come back. You will find that there is friction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers as we come later into the book of Romans. But nevertheless, the vast majority of the people who would have received this book would have indeed been Gentile. They would have been Greek and Roman believers. With the background of the book covered, let's get to the main thrust of the message today, and that is the basics of Romans. What are the basics of Romans? What is the outline, the argument that Paul is placing before us? It is a letter, and so we would expect, in line with almost every Roman letter, as we call it a book, but it's just a really thick book. It's really just a letter that Paul has written to these people in Rome. It has both an introduction and a conclusion to it. The introduction runs from verse 1 all the way down to verse 15 of the first chapter. Let us read the first five of those verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Here we find, at least in, again, introductory form, almost everything that Paul will unpack as we go throughout the rest of the book. The first thing we find out is that the gospel is front and center. The gospel, which he promised beforehand, which is found in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that Paul means to speak of. The gospel and our salvation in the gospel that Paul means to speak of most clearly in the book of Romans. He is not writing a book about church polity. The way in which churches are organized, the role of elders and deacons and other things like that is not found in this book. He is not writing a book concerning the Lord's Supper. Very little is found concerning even the rite of baptism, let alone the Lord's Supper, which is almost completely absent. Nor, even with chapter 11, is he writing really about eschatology. It is the salvation of Gentiles and Jews together through the work of Jesus Christ that is the central focus of the book of Romans. It is also his desire to take that gospel to the nations and his mission to the nations and to bring unity to all of the nations, that that gospel proclaimed both to Jew and Gentile comes through him to all people. The introduction done. We then turn in verses 16 through the end of chapter 4 all the way to 425 where Paul turns his sights to the equality of the gospel. The equality of the gospel. Paul begins this section in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him, to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Paul begins by mentioning the fact that it is the wrath of God which is revealed against all men. Now, here clearly, I think once we understand where chapter 2 fits in here, it seems as though he's speaking mostly to the Gentiles, and it's clear that God has revealed enough of himself in nature that they should have known not to worship statues, and they should have known not to worship creatures, but nevertheless, all men have turned in unrighteousness and started to worship things that were not God. They worship the creature instead of the creator. Therefore, God gives them up to debased minds. He gives them up to all kinds of filth and sin. In the end, 
Paul lists a number of sins and says at the end of verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Every man, woman, and child in this world outside of Jesus Christ is doomed to die and the wrath of God stands over them. However, once we turn to chapter 2, you realize that Paul has in his mind a way of dealing with this that is going to pinpoint the need for the law to come into play. That is, what do we do with the law? What do we do with Jewish people? Are they saved? Aren't they, don't they have special promises? What happens with the law? Does the law give you an advantage? Does the law make it easier for you to know salvation? Paul says, in a way, yes, it does. But only if you keep it and do it fully. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So he says, that's fine. You want the law. You've got the law. That's great. But if you don't keep the entirety of the law, it does you no good. The law will judge you. You think the people who don't have the law will be judged. Yes, they will be. They will be judged without the law. But you who have the law will be judged under the law. It comes to a head in verse 17 and following. If you call yourself a Jew, that is one who follows the law and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul turns to the Jews and he says, you might think that you keep the law, but if you keep the law, you would be an odd duck because you stand outside of the history of all of the Jews. Scripture proclaims that God himself is blasphemed by the way you handle the law. So by the time we get down to chapter 3, in verse 9, he says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. The equality of the wrath of God hanging over people is the same for Jews and the same for Gentiles. Gentiles have sinned by turning away from their creator God. Jews sin by turning away from the law. Paul then turns to the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah to have a litany of verses charging that absolutely no one is free from sin. In verse 10 of chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
What is amazing about that passage is that Paul is bringing together a collocation of different psalms and proverbs to make his point. This isn't just David having a bad day unleashing on people. He says, this is the constant testimony of the psalms that both Jew and Gentile alike, both of them, are not righteous before God. Look at your footnotes. If you have footnotes in your Bible that list all of the different places that those particular verses come from, Paul is just pulling them together because he wants you to see that it's not one little bit of Scripture that speaks this way. All of the Psalms speak this way. All fall short of the glory of God. We then turn to the great good news of verses 21 through 31. God's righteousness is manifested. Earlier in verse 17 of the first chapter, we had that the righteousness of God has been made known, has been declared. Then the wrath of God is made known, and now again, the righteousness of God is manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The result is because everyone is sinful before God, that the salvation that comes to every person, whether Jew or Gentile, is the same. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that you cannot be saved by any other means. There is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. This equality binds all people together. Listen to these verses beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means that Jesus extinguishes the red-hot wrath of God. If he was on fire with anger and frustration at our sin, and his anger burned against us, the blood of Jesus extinguishes that fire. He puts it out. We are only justified, we are only declared innocent because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. That is no different for the Jew, no different for the Gentile, no different for the soccer mom than it is for the drug dealer. It is all the same. We don't necessarily think of the world in, in two different fashions like Gentile and Jew anymore. We might think of it as difference by race. We might think of it as different by social class. There's no doubt that some of you feel as though you are better than others. You were not before the Lord. The same salvation occurs for you as it does for everyone in every slum of Mumbai into the highest penthouse that you can find in New York City. The rich, the poor alike, come to Jesus for salvation and only to Jesus for salvation. The question then turns to, well, is this some sort of new innovation by Paul? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, so maybe this is just his way of making himself seem more important. And, and after all, circumcision would have been an awfully large barrier to pass, and keeping the law would have been an awfully large barrier to pass for a lot of Gentiles to come to the Jewish faith. We know this because it literally was. There was a lot of, of people who were Greek, who were God-fearers, but they stopped short of becoming fully Jewish. So maybe this was just something that, that Paul put together, a way of theologically reasoning to make his job in spreading the gospel to the Gentiles easier. Chapter 4 puts an end to that thought. What then? 
He starts out in chapter 4 saying, Shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In verse 3, For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It has always been faith that gives people righteousness. It has never been what they do. It has never been how they act. It is always through faith. Just as David, he then marches not only from Abraham but down to David, also speaks of the blessing to whom God does not count righteousness apart. Excuse me. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one whom the Lord forgives. Not blessed is the one who keeps the law. Paul makes the very clear connection. Abraham, when it says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul says, I read that in Genesis 15. Do you know when I read about circumcision? Two chapters later. That time matters. God is not just the God of space, but he is the God of time. And he counts by faith righteousness to Abraham before circumcision and before the law ever came to be. So he might be the father, not only of the circumcised, but also of the uncircumcised. This is the equality of the gospel. The burden of Paul is clear. Salvation does not come through simply being the right kind of person, whether moral, which we cannot be, or Jewish, which doesn't matter. It is only through faith in Jesus. In chapter 5, then, we have the turning to the next major section of the book of Romans, which is the effect of the gospel. What is the effect of the gospel? Paul begins by saying this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. His wrath is removed, and therefore, while we stood under his condemnation and we stood under his anger, no longer do we do that. So the first thing that we read of is that he removes our condemnation and death and gives us life instead. Look to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Later, he's going to talk about how that death reigned from Moses or from Adam all the way to Moses, even before there was law, there was death in the world. That our death was present there. Our death was present because Adam infected all of us with sin, and he infected all of us with death. So what does Jesus do? He undoes what Adam did. Listen to what Paul then says in verse 17. If, because of one man's trespass, because Adam failed in the garden... Death reigned through that one man. How much more, just much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Notice what Paul says there. He doesn't say, Jesus died to clear the slate for you, so you're now neutral. You, you kind of sit on the fulcrum, and you can go either way. You might go bad, you might go good, but, but he's at least cleared the path for you. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, the one man led to sin and death. Much more in abundance has what Jesus Christ done given to you life so that you would reign. He hasn't just made it neutral. He has taken you completely to the other side. 
There is goodness and quality in what Jesus has done. He removes completely condemnation and death and gives us life instead. This verse 17, and I'm sure that I will probably change my mind on this as we get closer, I think is the starting point and the launching point for everything that he says in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And I think it's all an explanation of that one verse. So what are the effects of him giving us life instead of condemnation? First, in 6, 1 through 23, we are freed from our sin. Paul says, you were not free from sin until you were unified to Christ, and now you are free from sin. Sin demanded that you do it. You weren't free from it. You were chained to it. Every single thing you did was laced and traced with sin. The best of your works flowed from a wicked and evil heart, and therefore everything you did was sin. But now, because Christ has been gracious to you and because you have been unified to him, now you are no longer chained to sin, but chained to righteousness, so that you ought to walk and righteousness. 6, 15 and following. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You are no longer enslaved to sin, but because you are no longer condemned in Jesus Christ, you are free to attach yourself, and you are indeed attached as a slave to righteousness. Secondly, in chapter 7, all the way from verse 1 through chapter 7 to chapter 8, verse 11, Paul is arguing that Jesus has freed us from the consequences of the law. He has freed us from the consequences of the law. This section begins by noting that once a death has occurred, the law no longer is binding on that relationship. So there's a picture of a husband and a wife. And if that wife were to take another husband while her husband lives, then she would be an adulteress. But if he dies, she is now free. The law has nothing to claim on her. She is free to marry whom she wants. So likewise, because we have died in Christ, the law has no claim over us anymore. The middle of this section, the rest of chapter 7, has to deal with the goodness of the law. Because we are freed from the consequences of the law, does that mean that the law was bad? Does that mean that the law was evil or wicked? No. As Paul says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law was indeed good, but sin by itself Use that which is good to show how wicked and evil it is. Read with me in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The purpose of the law was to show how sinful our sin truly is. That even a good and gracious and righteous law given to us was only used by our own sinful nature to produce more sin. How wicked our sin truly is. The effect is that we must be saved from our flesh. Here of all places, Paul talks about this dualism between his mind and his body. That there's something wicked in his flesh that pulls him towards sin even as he desires to do what God requires in his mind. 
He finishes this section at the end of chapter 7 by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in chapter 8 then, he picks up the same theme again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The law's consequence, having been freed from it, no longer stands over us. However, that does not mean that we do not use the law or that the law has no meaning for us. Listen to what he begins to say in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here in chapter 8, we get that the consequences of the law are taken away from us, but because we are bound to righteousness, we still fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We are still pursuing godliness. We can still read Psalm 119 together and affirm what it says about the goodness of the law and pursue it. Although we do not pursue it to gain salvation, we pursue it as a way of obtaining the righteous requirement of the law. If then we are freed from sin and we are freed from the consequence of the law, the only thing that is left for us in this world is unabated hope. Chapter 8, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, is Paul continually pointing us to the great hope that we have in Christ. If there is no condemnation, if there is no more death in the flesh, that we have to fear dying and, and being under the wrath of God forever, if now the consequences of the law have been removed from us and the gates of life have been opened to us, that we might reign in life forevermore, the only thing that is left for us is hope. And that hope comes amidst suffering. Paul is very clearly in touch with people. He's not Pollyannish. He knows that you are going to suffer in this life. He knows that you are going to lose loved ones. He knows that there will be pain. He knows that there will be tears. He knows that there will be grave discomfort for you. He knows that you are going to struggle in this life. But the hope in the suffering and the trial, the hope in the pain and the tears, the hope even in death, is real. I don't know of any other chapter in Scripture that speaks as highly of hope as does Romans chapter 8. Read with me, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake 
We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is only hope. The effect of the gospel to free us from our sin, to free us from the consequence of the law, and to give us unending hope. Fourth, from chapter 9, verse 1 to eleven thirty-six, we hear Paul pre- present to us the exoneration of the gospel. The exoneration of the gospel. He is going to justify a problem that occurs here. In chapter 9, Paul seems to step back from what he is saying. As we talked in our introduction, we, we noted that the background of this, most of these people are Gentile believers. 20 years on into this, this word of Jesus and the gospel going forward, it's clear that the Jewish people have not responded continuously the way they started to respond in the book of Acts. And that the church is becoming more and more Gentile-focused as the gospel spreads among the Gentiles, but it has not spread amongst the Jews the same way that we would probably think it would have. Why haven't more Jews believed? That's especially galling if this hope in Jesus is the natural outworking of the promises of the Old Testament. Paul in chapter 4 seemed to say this is exactly what Abraham did. Abraham looked forward to the day of Jesus where he would be absolved from his sins because of the work of the Lord. So why is it that these Old Testament promises, which were written to the Jewish people, have not come to fruition for them? Does this mean that the Old Testament promises have failed? This is specifically what Paul answers in verse 6. But it is not, in chapter 9, verse 6, as though the word of God has failed. The word of God hasn't failed. The promises haven't come. Why has all of this happened? The answer through the rest of chapter 9 is very clear. This has happened because God wanted it to happen. This has happened because God is sovereignly in control of mercy and belief. He is sovereignly in control of his compassion, moving people to faith. Not all Israel is Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And Paul goes back to the very children of Abraham and he says, listen, Ishmael wasn't chosen. Isaac was chosen. And even of Isaac's sons, Esau was rejected, but Jacob was saved and an heir to the promise. Read in verse 11 how Paul argues this. Talking about Rebekah giving birth to Isaac and, or excuse me, excuse me, to Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born as twins and had done nothing either good or bad, before there was any judgment at all over anything they did, before they had done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the other will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God has accepted one and rejected the other. More than that, Paul is going to then look at the entire Hebrew nation and say, why were the Hebrews chosen and not Pharaoh's? Why, why the people of Abraham and not the people of Pharaoh? 
He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God is the one who chooses where his blessings will flow. God is the one who chooses where his compassion will go. It has always been that way. However, many people might bring some sort of cautionary word, perhaps even to God, and say, I don't know how it is that you expect to hold me accountable to your own will. How am I supposed to fight your will? If you say it's supposed to be this way and you're sovereign, it's got to be this way. How can you hold me accountable? Paul's got a word for you. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He says, that's as silly as a pot looking at the one who's formed it and saying, why'd you make me a pot? It wasn't your choice. It was mine. God is the creator. God has the right to do what he so chooses. But Paul, as incredibly helpful as he is in isolating the sovereignty of God in election, ends that chapter and moves directly into our true response. In chapter 10, our faith is indeed ours. God's sovereign control over salvation and mercy doesn't mean that we're just cogs in a machine, that we're just robots doing what we're programmed to do, and that our choices are therefore meaningless. Many fret how we can have true and abiding faith and make the choice to follow Jesus in this life if God is truly sovereign. And they want to know, how can these two things be fit together? And there are people who have done the philosophy and the theologian that, that allow that to be put together. Paul, however, isn't one of them. Paul just says in Romans 9, it is God's sovereign choice of election. And in chapter 10, he says, by the way, it's also because the people who are saved have called out to him for salvation. It is your faith. You're not a robot. You're not just a meaningless pre-programmed thing that's working itself out. It is truly your faith that is you calling out to God for salvation. Verse 9 of chapter 10 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. At the end, in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is truly your faith. Why is Israel rejected? Israel is rejected because God is sovereignly over and in control of all things, and he has done it in his good and gracious plan for other purposes. And secondly, they have been rejected because they have rejected God. Both of those things are true. Therefore, Paul turns in chapter 11 to note that this has always been the way it's been. Not all Israel is Israel. He says, first and foremost, you need to understand, it's clear that not all Israel has been rejected. Because after all, Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Benjaminite. I am myself a child of Abraham through physical descent. And this has always been the way it is. He goes back and talks about how Elijah thought that he was alone, but God said, no, I've kept a remnant. In keeping a remnant, it's clear that there is part that is saved aside, always keeping the promises to Israel, but at the same time, that there's also a huge amount that have been rejected. There has been a pattern given to us. God indeed does save a remnant. It means that those 
who have been hardened have been hardened for the good of Gentiles. Chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has done this in some measure so that the gospel might go to the nations. But that cannot lead to Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, to being think for a second that they are somehow deserving of what has happened to them or that the Jews are somehow below them now. Listen to what Paul says in verses 18 through 21 of that same chapter. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. The promises through Abraham of the scriptures fit so much better with Jews. It makes more sense for Jewish people to believe in it. It makes more sense of the Old Testament for Jewish people. We are all foreigners to this. This isn't our history. It's our history through faith, but it's not our history through descent. We are foreigners. We're wild olive branches that have been grafted on here. And Paul is saying, if you become haughty, you need to understand. It makes more sense for God to graft on the natural branches. So be humble. Fear God. Give praise to him for his kindness to you. That leads into a beautiful benediction of the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. The theological section of the portion of Romans ends then, and now we head into more applicational, and that is the ethics of the gospel. The ethics of the gospel from 12.1 to 15.13. one sets up pretty much the rest of this section. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sacrifices are normally to be killed, but you are to sacrifice your body daily, every single day, before the throne of God. You are to give yourself over to him, to serve him and his people always. Paul says, this is the right response to everything that you have read, to everything that I have said. If your response is not to lay down your life in service to God, you need to go back and reread until you get it. So we are to use the gifts that God has given us in 12, 3 through 8 as often and as much as we can, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, as Paul says in verse 3. Verses 9 through the end, the repeated refrain is to do what is good, to love one another, and to serve one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, even to those who would persecute you. You are to have kindness and love toward them. This is the basic of the ethics of the gospel. And this is true, not just of individuals, but to the authorities that are above you, even in the state. Know that Paul wrote Romans 13, especially those first seven to eight verses. He wrote those specifically at a time when the Roman state was not going to be kind toward Christians. Paul no doubt knew what he was writing about. 
Now, there's much to say about this and much in way of application for us today. But it does set the tone that our first impulse should always be to submit to the state because God has put the state there for our good. This is part of walking in humility, giving honor to those who are above us, appointed by God for that very purpose. In 13, 8 through 14, Paul returns to the idea of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor in verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You are to love all people. Love your neighbor as yourself. This are the ethics. These are the ethics of the kingdom of God. Chapter 14, all the way to the end of our section, 15, 13, deals with the basic problem that would come up between Jews and Gentiles as they lived together. Jews following their own special days or, or the pattern of food that they eat would have sat differently, coming from different cultures in such varied and different ways, standing, standing and approaching faith in different measures than the Gentiles would, and it created friction. Many of the Gentiles didn't understand why you observe these specific days and why don't you eat meat. We know that it's okay. Peter himself said it was okay. The sheet was taken up three times. Kill and eat. We know that it's okay. Paul's issue here is unity. If it's a matter of the conscience, let it go. Paul talks, therefore, about not judging brothers and sisters. Clearly, he doesn't mean not judging in anything. The commandment does say you are not to kill. You are not to murder. So if there's a murderer in your midst, Paul's not going to say, hey, I don't want to. I want to pass judgment, you know. No, Paul's going to judge him. And Paul's going to be very clear about that. But eating and drinking is not a matter of the law. It's not a matter of clear distinctions from God. It is a matter of the conscience. And when it is a matter of the conscience, Paul tells us, we are to let it go. More than that, the strong are not to look down upon or to wrangle the weak into doing what they want them to do. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Listen, Paul can call them failings. He can look at them and say, yes, they failed. They failed to grip what has happened to them in Jesus Christ. They failed to come to a complete knowledge. Okay, don't tear down your brother in Christ because you feel like they failed, but bear with them. Love them and be kind to them. We are to put up with those who we think are weaker in conscience And in doing so, we act like Christ. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't tear down your brother and your sister, but walk in love and humility. Walk as Christ did with you. 1514, to the end of the book is Paul's conclusion. He returns to his desire to see the Romans, to his desire to elicit help from the Romans that he might take the gospel to Spain so that even the barbarians there might know the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 16 is a long litany of people that they are to greet. This shows that Paul clearly had a sense of what was going on 
in Rome. He knew tons of people in Rome. He knows more people in Rome than I do. But it's, it's a sign of something else, too. You read through that list of people. It's clear that Paul, who we think of as so wonderfully strong and powerful in the Lord, needed greatly the help of many on all of his missionary journeys and in all of his work. That being the basics of the book of Romans, very quickly sketched. What is the burden of Romans? Then thirdly, let's finish off by simply talking about the burdens. And I'm not trying here to make all of these things plain and clear. I simply want to introduce these things to you as a way to maybe whet your appetite as we go through these. All of these things kind of find their way through every one of these sections in the book of Romans. The first one would be the idea of righteousness. If there was one word that would sum up the book of Romans better than any other, it would be the term righteousness. But righteousness does not stand on its own. There are a number of terms that come along with it. It doesn't carry over well into English. But the idea of righteousness and justification, and even ideas of justice and rightness, of God being the just one, are all part of the same kind of word group here. We might sometimes think of justice and righteousness as two different things, but they wouldn't have been to Paul. They would have been part and parcel of one another. From the opening thematic statement of 1, 16 through 17, where Paul says, For in it, that is, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. To 3.21, the righteousness of God having been manifested. To 6.18, where we read that we have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. To 9.30, that we now live and achieve righteousness through faith. Righteousness forms the basis of almost every single thing that Paul says. We are justified, we are declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ and therefore are to walk in righteousness. But that term does not simply mean that we do what is right. And it doesn't just mean that we are declared righteous by God. It implies that, yes. But there is also implicit in this a sense of justice. It is both internal and personal. So that you can stand up before God and, and declare that you do what is right. Or you can declare before men, I do what is right. It is both internal and personal, but external and public. That you do to others as you ought to do to them. Secondly, one of the themes of the book of Romans is unity. Paul places a tremendous importance on unity between Jew and Gentile in the gospel. It's not quite as in your face as the book of Ephesians is, but it's there and it permeates all of it. That because Jesus Christ has died for us, as much as we are all humans in Adam, we are all Christians in Christ. And the equality of the gospel does away with Jew-Gentile distinction. It certainly does away with any other distinctions that we might have. And Paul is clearly making himself in this book a peacemaker. He's not simply a peacekeeper. He doesn't say, okay, Gentiles and Jews, I know you're not getting along, so here's what we're going to do. Jews, go make your own church. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ as you see fit. Gentiles, you go to your own side. You know, kids, go to your rooms. Behave yourself so that I don't have to hear it anymore. That's not what Paul says. He says, no, you've got to get along. The weaker have to understand where the strong are coming from, and the stronger need to bear with the, the weakness of the weak. In Christ, all believers are to be reconciled to one another. There should be unity amongst the people of God. Third, the mission that Paul is on. The mission is the centerpiece of the letter. 
It's not often that we think of mission documents and say, hey, the book of Romans is a mission document, but it is from first to last a document about the mission of God to take the gospel to people who haven't heard. The whole thing is bound by that. The whole reason why Paul is writing there is to elicit help, monetary and prayerful help from the Romans so that he might take the gospel to Spain. The whole middle part which is an elaboration on our salvation, is there so that they will come along Paul and say, yes, that is what has happened in Christ, and we want to fund you. We want you to take that message to all of the people of the world. Friends, as much as we are reminded of the the gracious work of Jesus Christ in giving us the gospel and telling us that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are saved, and as much as we would look at one another and say, there is only one name by which you would be saved, that you would confess your sin before Jesus Christ. Confess his name as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That is the message that we proclaim here. It is the message that is theologically founded in everything that Paul writes here. But, if you are able to read through chapters 1 through 11 and be as theologically grounded as you want to be and have every point parsed and have every verse memorized, you know what the nature of our salvation is. You can, you can talk for hours about the election of the saints and the provision of Christ for us and the hope that we have in him. But you are unwilling to pray, to proclaim, or to provide for the gospel to go out to the nations. You have missed the purpose of the book of Romans. You flat out missed it. The book of Romans is there to have the gospel go out into the world. And finally, and ultimately, it is for God's glory. All of it is to be for God's glory. The wrath of God is upon sinful men and women because they fall short of his glory in 323. God himself has to come in his own glory to do what sinful flesh couldn't do in 8.3. The election of God's saints is there so that they might see his glory and his patience in 9, 22 through 24 so that all might stand in wonder at his glory, that beautiful benediction of chapter 11, because it is to him that glory belongs evermore. As Paul ends his book in chapter 16, verse 27, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the point of our lives, and it is the point of our salvation. Jesus Christ has been sent to redeem us, not for your glory, not for my glory, not to make us think better of ourselves, but so that we might be reshaped and reframed in the glory of God, so that he might show us the glory of God, and we might reflect that glory to a lost and dying world, so that the great work of Jesus Christ might resound through the people of his mercy. This is the glory of God that ought to propel us forward, and it should color everything that we say and do. Friends, this was just a sketch and an incredibly inadequate one as well. It's just an outline. It's just a map of the terrain that we are going to eventually cover. Next week, to keep up the metaphor, our plane will land, we will disembark, and hopefully we will get to immerse ourselves, as much as I can immerse you in it, in the sights and the smells of this great book. And just like any other trip, you're going to have to prepare for it. You won't need a passport. You don't need a toothbrush. You don't need to pack extra clothes, although this isn't a Zoom meeting, so pants are requisite. You've got to wear pants. But you don't need extra clothes. 
But you are to prepare for this by reading and praying through the book of Romans. Ask God that you might see the wonders of Christ and that through these, see the beauty and the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that you have preserved for us the letter of Paul to the Romans. We pray over the entire series that you might show us your glory and your goodness manifested in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, brought to us by the revealing work of your Spirit. As we are reminded of your great salvation, let us praise the God who has loved us even while we were sinners and has given us eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. May the name of the Lord be praised forever and ever. Amen.